now say now you're tuned in to the wake up and win podcast and i am your host devon pouncey i am here in the beautiful city of portland oregon at the momentum studios i don't have anybody alongside me nor do i have any guests on today's episode but who i do have is zeb who's on the controls engineer making sure that this podcast sounds pleasant for your ears so we definitely appreciate zeb for showing up but nobody else did it's just me and uh I got some takes, just a few, just a few. It's been a real busy day for me today as, you know, I'll get into some announcements here in a minute, but got to start off with the recap of the Street Roots family breakfast. We've been pushing the breakfast. We've been promoting the breakfast. And today was the day. Today was game day this morning. My morning started getting up at five o'clock in the morning, getting suited and booted. I went with the all black. Black on black, all black, everything with a hint of red by way of my bow tie. So I got fly, got up, went over to the studios. We got in there, got to kick it with the folks over at AV Cast who put a phenomenal production together for us again this year. They did it again last year. Link up with Andrew, who's our deputy director at Street Roots. And obviously my co-host, Maggie Vespa of KGW and Hey, we got in there. We kicked it for an hour and a half, did a little bit of a pre-show run, you know, mic check, all the things, and we got the show on the road. And this show was absolutely phenomenal. It was such a huge success. I've told y'all on here before that our goal was to reach $90,000, and we indeed did reach $90,000. We ended up raising upwards of $92,000, and that was just by the end of the broadcast. We have the broadcast still up right now. If you go to any of the Street Roots website, Street Roots Twitter, social media, you name it, you'll be able to go find the link to the broadcast and it is, as it is now available to be rewatched. It basically became available to be rewatched as soon as the live event was over. So you still can go rewatch it. You still can give and donate for the family breakfast to Street Roots. It's just such a phenomenal mission that we have over at Street Roots. And it was just so good to see so many different people. So, like, we have a chat room, obviously, like like any broadcast does. You go on Zoom, you got a Zoom chat. You go on Google, you got a Google chat. You go on Skype, you got all these places you can go on and you can have a chat room, essentially. And to see so many Portlanders, so many people from the city of Portland, and I'm talking all the way up to the politicians, the Mayor Ted Wheeler's in there donating, all the Multnomah County commissioners, uh, all, all the way up to Chair Deborah Kafori is in there donating. I mean, you had state senators in there, local officials, just so many different people that came to support, virtually, of course, our Street Roots family breakfast this year. And again, it was so dope to be able to read, I mean, to be able to reach our goal, which was $90,000. We were able to surpass that. And Maggie Vespa, man, hoo-wee, Maggie Vespa, she is so talented. I mean, just certainly one of the more talented broadcasters here in the city of Portland, and we got a lot of them, so that's no knock to any other broadcasters, but just seeing the work that Maggie Vespa already does as I follow her and I follow her coverage and so on and so forth, and then you never really get a the, the real true feel until you get to work beside somebody as talented as Maggie is. She made my job a whole lot easier. Last year was a little bit different because when Maggie and I co-hosted, we couldn't be in the same studio together. So last year you had Maggie who was able to like pre-record 
her segments from the KGW studios, and I was the only one that was able to be live in studio. So I had to obviously do my segments by myself. I had to do the pitch by myself. I had to rally off all of the names that are coming up on the screen as folks are donating while the live is going, and we're trying to see the donation or a gift thermometer reach that goal, which was $90,000. And when I tell you all that is a task, especially when you got 300-something donors and you're looking at a teleprompter and names are just coming across, you can't even really get a real rhythm because it's not like it's a preset list necessarily. Like They have some people on the list already because they give earlier on in the, in the uh, broadcast and so on and so forth. But names just continue to be added as you're live broadcasting. So again, you're not just reading off a preset list where you can kind of create your own rhythm. You're reading off of a list that is based on who donates during the live broadcast. You have to call out their names. You have to do your best to try to say and pronounce their names correctly. And it is not an easy thing to do. I promise you, I've been able to do some pretty cool things in the broadcast space. But even Maggie got a dose of it today because last year she didn't do the pitch, being that she did all of her segments from KGW Studio. So this time around, her and I got to split the pitch together. And she's seen how winded that you can be by doing that. But again, it was a phenomenal event. It was so much fun. It was so cool to be able to see the city just come together for such a great cause. I'm really, really looking forward to the transcripts of the chat because obviously I'm broadcasting live. So while a lot of people are talking about the broadcast as it's airing, I'm not really doing so. I was able to check the chat one time, like between segments when I wasn't live, and it was just cracking. It was just, you know, folks would not stop participating in the chat. Obviously, speaking to that of the broadcast, speaking to that of me and Maggie Vespa, which again, she was super dope. And I'm looking forward to being able to read those transcripts because that's where you get to really see and feel how great the broadcast was, obviously. And you get to see feedback that took place in real time that I'm not necessarily able to see as the talent keeping the broadcast going. So shout out to Portland again. Shout out to Street Roots. Shout out to that of Maggie Vespa and everybody that donated. This was just, again, another phenomenal event. Raising upwards of 90000 for anything is no small feat. And the fact that we were able to do that this year for this year's family breakfast, I know that's the most we've ever raised at a family breakfast. And usually prior to last year and this year, of course, we did those breakfasts live and in person. And we did them over at the convention center in like a big ballroom type setting at the convention center. And we brought out a lot of people. Like we brought out four to 500 people to those events. And all those, those events were great. And obviously you miss being able to have events of that magnitude in person. These broadcast events have sure been a success for us. So again, raised the most money we've ever raised at a Street Roots Family Breakfast. Super dope. Sooner, super honored to be a part of the organization and obviously honored to have been a part of the broadcast today. So if you missed it, you can still go rewatch it. Go head over to Street Roots Twitter. Go head over to Street Roots social media page. There is a link there for you to be able to watch this year's 2021 Street Roots Family Breakfast. Heck, I'm going to go rewatch it tonight after I leave here.
because I haven't even rewatched it yet. I'm literally fresh off of work. I did the broadcast this morning, went into the office after that, went from the office, had a little bite to eat, and now I'm here talking to you. So make sure you go and check that out. And I'm going to go do the same. I'm checking it out tonight. I'll probably be my harshest critic when I check it out tonight, but I'm going to try to just enjoy it. I'm going to try to enjoy it, but knowing me, you know, I'm already going to be thinking about what I can do better for next year. So, again, thanks for everybody for supporting, and I'm just happy that we had a successful event. Other announcements being made October 9th, I will be calling the Pacific University football game. Go Boxers, my alma mater, they'll be playing against University of Puget Sound from Washington, from Tacoma, Washington area. And actually, our current basketball coach for Pacific's men's basketball team is the former University of Puget Sound basketball coach. So he came from Puget Sound to Pacific. So it's always cool, especially during basketball, to see that when he gets to play against his former team. But this time around, it'll be in football. So be sure to check that game out on GoBoxers.com. Also, while you're at GoBoxers.com, start looking at the schedules. You got the men's basketball team that'll be playing, obviously, this year. So is the women's teams. I'm fortunate enough to not only be the play-by-play voice for Pacific's football program, but also for that of the men's and women's basketball programs over at Pacific. And then... You can also go to Portland State University's website because I'm the analyst at PSU. So, again, it's super cool to be kind of living in both of those worlds. Like, the journalist in me gets to really kind of get in my bag by way of what I'm doing as a play-by-play personality. But the former basketball player in me, the former all-conference college basketball player in me, gets to be an analyst calling these Portland State University games because I obviously had playing experience, and I know what it's like playing at the collegiate level, and I know the game. Quite frankly, I know the game. So it's always fun to be able to kind of do both and really dig into my play-by-play bag, but also be able to kind of give my analyst bag and really give my takes on what I think is going on based on what it is that I'm obviously observing while I'm calling the game rather than play-by-play where you just kind of got to be straight up and down and call the play out as it's happening. So it's fun to kind of live in both of those worlds during basketball season. Definitely keeps me super busy, but be sure to check those schedules out. Also, while you're at it, subscribe to ESPN+, Plus. that's the only way you're going to see me on uh, Portland State's broadcast. We're on ESPN Plus this year. The Big Sky Conference signed a new contract, the new broadcast contract with that of ESPN Plus. Last year, we used to be on Pluto TV. Don't ask me why, but that's where we used to be. But now we're on ESPN Plus. So go ahead and subscribe. Check that out. Check the schedule out. I only do men's basketball games at Portland State, though, but I do men's and women's at Pacific, and you can find all of those games on goldboxers.com. Also, we still got the Brian Hooks PD Experience comedy show coming up. We are not canceling that. We did postpone it. We talked about why we postponed it on last episode, but it is not canceled. We will be having that show October 29th, so you can still head over to jacklondonreview.com. That is R-E-V-U-E, not R-E-V-I-E-W. So go to Jack London. R-E-V-U-E dot com. You can purchase a ticket online there. And it's going to be funny. This dude's a classic man. He's definitely a legend in the comedic acting space. 
He's been on some absolute hood classics, starred in movies like Three Strikes, also was on The Eve Show, also was on the movie Soul Plane. You also might have seen him in The Parkers with Monique. And you might have heard him on this podcast earlier this year for y'all that act like y'all don't remember because it was a heck of an episode where we really got to kind of dig into comedy in today's society. Obviously, we know... We're in a little bit different of a culture today in terms of how people view things, how people speak about things, and just people's viewpoint of the world is a lot different than it was than it once was in the past. So everybody has to adjust and adapt to it. As a podcaster, as a journalist, I got to adapt to it. You all got to adapt to it as everyday citizens. And you better believe comedians may or may not have to adapt to it, but Depending on what they're willing to adapt to or not, they got to deal with some consequences. That's what it comes down to for comedians. I don't necessarily like the censorship of comedians. I kind of like the raunchy shit. Part of the reason why I like podcasting more than I like radio, because I don't really like the censorship of radio. I like to get sort of the raw emotion from podcasters. But you still got to know what you're talking about. Don't get it twisted. You have to know what you're talking about. But if, you know, you got to slip a cuss word in there to get your point across or, you know, you're just somebody who does not know how to talk without cussing, that's okay, too, because my ears are not that aversion ears. They've heard a lot over the years, and we will talk more about people getting cursed out a little bit later on. But indeed, I do kind of like the, you know, the raunchy kind of crazy comedic talk. But again... There's consequences that come with the words that you say these days. So even comedians are having to learn how to adapt and how to shift and how to navigate through that while still being able to be funny and, like, get the joke off. So I'm definitely excited for B-Hooks. And and I'll be honest with you, I've been doing these comedy shows for a couple years now. We kind of obviously took a pause because of COVID, so we weren't able to do the comedy shows, but... We got a really tough crowd that comes out and supports us. So if you ain't funny, the crowd will gladly let you know. They will get you off of that stage and you stage and you will leave that stage so absolutely embarrassed because you just could not get the job done. But Brian Hooks will definitely be able to get the job done. So buy your tickets October 29th. That's Halloween weekend. So I know many of you are going to want to be getting outside anyway. You got to show your proof of vaccination, and we're going to talk about vaccines here in a second, especially in its relation to that of the NBA, but got to show your proof of vaccination, So, or you got to have a negative COVID test within 48 hours or something like that. But, I mean, hey, that's totally up to you on what you want to do, but it's just kind of the way of the world now. So be there or don't, but I'll be there. I'll be there. Now. It is time to get to today's content. And I'm obviously going to talk about what everybody else is talking about. And that is the NBA had media day this week. And you got your players that are not vaccinated that are speaking out. And I don't know if defense is even the word because I don't know what's so offensive about a vaccine. But either way, you have players that feel as if they have to defend themselves because they aren't willing to take the vaccine. Now, last week, I gave a take and L's to Andrew Wiggins because he's in the city of San Francisco. And in the city of San Francisco, he would not be able to play in any home games this year 
as a resident of San Francisco if he does not get vaccinated. So obviously, he tried to get an exemption for religious reasons as to why he's not getting vaccinated. The city of San Francisco did not approve it. So we'll see what his come to Jesus moment is going to be like here in the very near future because the, the season's right around the corner. So if it really is a religious exemption that he's trying to get, well, he's going to have to take that up with Jesus here because the moment is pretty much now to decide if he's going to get vaccinated or not. But as of right now, he, he isn't vaccinated. It is what it is. He would have to miss 41 games, of course, unless he got dealt away to a different market that doesn't have the same mandates that the city of San Francisco has. Now, in New York, you got Kyrie Irving who still hasn't decided to get vaccinated. And they're under similar mandates as San Francisco, where if he doesn't get vaccinated, he's going to have to miss 41 games. Oh, and by the way, they won't be getting paid for these games that they miss. Now, we know how it is. Most of the, especially their contracts with the level of players that they are, they get all that money guaranteed. But if they missing this game, these games because they don't have the vaccine, they're not getting paid for those games. Now, I don't want to make this an episode where Kyrie Irving and Andrew Wiggins and whoever else isn't vaccinated in the NBA, Bradley Beal, Jonathan Isaac, so on and so forth. I don't want to make them a punching bag on this particular episode. And the reason why I don't want to make them a punching bag on this particular episode is because, first and foremost, I feel like they're a punching bag in enough places right now that I don't need to pile on to that. But I do want to clear up a narrative that I have been seeing based on the mandates in the city of San Francisco and the mandates in the city of New York, because I'm hearing a narrative where people are saying that these cities are hypocritical. And I've heard this narrative all the way up to that of Stephen A. Smith on first take, where Stephen A., who, by the way, does not support Andrew Wiggins or Kyrie Irvin's, Irvin and their reasons for why they don't want to get vaccinated. So he definitely isn't putting this narrative out there to give them a reason or an excuse to not get vaccinated. But he felt like if they used this excuse, which I'm getting ready to explain to you here in a second, that that would be the best excuse that they had in terms of not getting vaccinated and where those cities that are mandating them for, to be vaccinated for them to be able to play in their home games are basically hypocritical. And here's what that is. What people are saying is that the city of San Francisco, as well as the city of New York, is hypocritical because... They won't allow Kyrie Irving and Andrew Wiggins playing home games. But if a visiting team comes to play in their home arena, where Wiggins currently wouldn't be able to play, nor would Kyrie Irving currently be able to play, because those opposing teams have exemptions to come play there, if they have players that aren't vaccinated, then those players are still able to play in San Francisco and in New York because they're exempt. Now, anybody in their right mind would say, that's not fair. I wouldn't say in their right mind, but anybody would be legitimate in thinking that, hey, that's not fair to say Kyrie Irving can't play for his home team 
Andrew Wiggins can't play on his home team, but you have these guys coming from Portland or coming from Philly or OKC or Milwaukee or Charlotte, you name it, any other NBA city that don't have these mandates, and they can have players that are unvaccinated that are allowed to come play in these games, but their own players aren't? That doesn't even sound right. It doesn't even sound logical. But what I'm here to do today is try to make sense of what's not making sense for many of y'all. And I can see why it doesn't make sense for any of y'all. But I want to try to clean and clear this narrative up so people can sort of understand the cause and effect and the effect of all of this rather than looking at this from a lens of, these cities are just hypocritical and it's causing more confusion for the people that are vaccinated or aren't vaccinated or why we should get vaccinated because this is all hypocritical information and it's just confusing every last one of us. Let me try to make it plain for you. So, the NBA has absolutely zero, they have absolutely zero rule that would allow a player not to play in the league if they are not vaccinated. This is the NBA I'm talking about. This is separate from the cities that have created these mandates all in these different NBA cities. Right now, obviously, we're keying in on New York and San Francisco, but the NBA as a league does not have any rules where players must be vaccinated for them to be able to play. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they would have to negotiate that with the players union. And that hasn't happened yet. And I think the reason that that hasn't happened yet is because the players union does not want to give up that much power and that much leverage to that of the NBA. I don't know if that's going to change or not. I think CJ McCollum is now the head of the Players Association, he's the president of the NBA Players Association, we'll see if any other kind of new negotiations come up. But 90% of the players in the league are vaccinated, but the, the NBA Players Union is not giving the power to that of the NBA to say, hey, if these guys aren't vaccinated, they can't play. So now that you have that, I want to take it back to early in the pandemic, March 2020, April 2020, back when, obviously, Donald Trump was the president and he was who we had elected into front office at that time. And one of the biggest criticisms that Trump would receive was that as the president of the United States, he lacked in leadership because he did not create a national or a federal plan for the United States of America to navigate through this pandemic. Trump didn't make no plans. What did Trump go and do? He basically fed to his base. He oftentimes called COVID a hoax. He said all these different things, but he never created a plan as the leader and the, 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 the president of the United States in America. He, the celebrity in chief, as I like to call him, I got that one from Charlemagne the God back in the day, but he didn't create this plan, so what he did was he said, hey, I'm putting this into the state officials' hands and into the local officials' hands to have to create mandates from city to city so that way I'm not making a decision that would, A, probably go against my base, or even if it was a decision that was in favor of my base, I don't want to make too big of a decision that can affect me in these elections because I make the wrong decision. So what I'm going to do is instead of being accountable and making a hard decision, decision. I'm just not going to make any decision at all. So that way, nobody feels or treats me as if I'm either on this side or I'm either on that side, even though he still got that treatment for 
a plethora of other reasons during his presidency. But ultimately, I don't want to take accountability for the accountability for this, because if I make a hard decision and that hard decision is the wrong decision, I'm going to get blamed for it. I also have a really, really big base who doesn't necessarily believe in this pandemic. So if I make a decision that goes against my base, well, that could potentially affect how many votes I get in the upcoming election, which obviously happened later in the year in 2020, November 2020. So being that Trump did not create a, a national mandate or a national plan for us to abide by and follow, whether we agree with this plan or not, he just didn't create a plan at all. You had all of these different cities and all of these different counties and all of these different states that were creating rules and creating uh, regulations and mandates that were different from the county next to them or the state next to them or the city next to them. So guess what? You got a big, huge lack of continuity across the entire United States of America because from city to city and from county to county, you had different mandates. So you had people flying to Miami from the West Coast because our mandates was a little bit stricter here on the West Coast. You had people flying to Atlanta because they were open. You did have people going into Phoenix because Phoenix was open for a significant amount of time. We know Phoenix was a red state up until this election. You had people that were literally targeting cities that had less strict mandates to be able to go there and live the lifestyles that they want to live. All good, all cool is what it is. But many of us know where continuity lacks allows for an increase in a mess to be able to be created. Now, some of you may wonder, well, why do you bring up Trump not having a national mandate and how things got so messy because you had different local mandates from county to county, from state to state, from city to city, to city, so on and so forth. And how do you correlate that to that of the NBA and why the city of New York and why the city of San Francisco are not hypocrites? Here's why. When the continuity lacks from state to state and you have different rules and different mandates in each of these different counties and each of these different cities, and you're a national entity like that of the NBA is, such as the same way the federal government is a national entity, entity in its own right, the NBA is a national entity in its own right. And we don't have the same baseline to follow. What it causes for is elected officials to only be able to do what they have to do in, in, in case of what they feel is right for their local city or for their local community. So in the case of San Francisco, got to be vaccinated to be able to attend X, Y, and Z type of events, especially if you're a resident. Now, say, let's use Portland, for example, because I live here in the city of Portland. The Portland Trailblazers are exempt. I do believe that the entire Trailblazers team is vaccinated, but just for the sake of this example, let's say we had a player on the Blazers who's unvaccinated or multiple players on the Blazers who's unvaccinated, and they got to go play the Golden State Warriors on opening night. And all those unvaccinated players are still able to play. Well, here's the thing. Because there's no continuity when it comes to the mandate across the country, Obviously, starting with government and leadership, first and foremost, even if we take it all the way back to that of Donald Trump. And then you have a league in the NBA, which is a national league that doesn't have a mandate for players to be vaccinated or not vaccinated. 
what would be even more hypocritical by these cities rather than uh, granting an exemption for these players to be able to come in from other cities that aren't operating under the same mandate or guidelines as they do is to say, listen, Warriors, I want to encourage all of you to get vaccinated. Steph, Clay, Draymond, you name it. James Wiseman, I don't give a damn. Whoever it is, you all need to get vaccinated in order for you to be able to participate these games in these games. But we're not going to give an exemption to the opposing team that is coming from a city with different mandates. And so now you're just not going to be able to play a game. That's basically what you're telling them. So why would you encourage your players to get vaccinated and then not exempt uh, uh, an opposing team coming from a different city, even if they do have players that are unvaccinated? It just don't make no sense. You as a local elected official, it, whether you're the mayor of San Francisco, whether you're the mayor of New York, you have to make sure that yours are protected first. You can only take care of and make certain mandates of your particular residents because due to the lack of continuity, because there's no rule in government or no rule or no national mandate, I should say, in government or any national mandate from that of the NBA for every city to abide by the same rules, I would look bad as a mayor of my city to tell my Golden State Warriors players that, hey, you got to be able to get vaccinated to participate in these games, but then say, but you also can't play against opposing teams coming from other cities who are operating under different guidelines, by the way, because their players aren't vaccinated. So now if I'm Steph or if I'm Clay or if I'm Draymond and it's like, yo, I did my job and got vaccinated. Why is it that I'm being punished because the opposing team didn't want to get vaccinated? We've already had this ex this exemption going in the first place. So you can't really like be picky and choosy in terms of what an exemption is going to look like because you're indeed giving them an exemption to be able to come play here. Hey, I am getting vaccinated obviously to stay healthy and stay safe and all of those things, but because I want to be able to do what it is that I want to do and what it is that I like to do. And so if you don't exempt them, but you're taking care of us because we're the only ones that you can create this mandate for as residents of this particular city, please don't punish us by saying that the opposing team that's operating under, under different mandates and guidelines can't come in and play in our city. That's not hypocritical. That is cause and effect. Because we didn't have a national or a federal government that wouldn't create a mandate for all of us, to a standard mandate for all of us to have to abide by, all these local officials can do is take care of or attempt to take care of their local residents. So it's not a matter of it not making sense. It's a matter of, hey, we're going to make sure we're as safe as humanly possible to be able to navigate through this and to be able to operate in the ways that we want to operate. But you can't punish the guy or punish your the rest of your, of your team for getting vaccinated by saying that they can't play against other teams that aren't vaccinated who are operating under totally different guidelines. The city of San Francisco and the city of New York lead in so many different elements, socially, politically, you name it. They've been the standard for so many different things just based on the markets that they are. But just because they set the standard for how things should go in the United States and America in a lot of cases does 
not mean they can actually implement how things go in every other city in that of the United States of America. They can create a model. But they can't force these other cities and counties to implement that model. So what do you do? I crack down on my own city and I make sure that my people are safe as possible. So that way, if an opposing team comes in unvaccinated, my people are already are already vaccinated and they are able to, you know, participate because they are already vaccinated. And if something happens to the player of the opposing team, they people got to take care of that and they people got to handle that and deal with that mandate from where it is that they come from because they don't have the same mandates that we do. And they are willing to operate a little bit more riskier than those that have already gotten the vaccine. So, again, please don't look at these cities as hypocritical. Look at these cities as taking care of their own or at least attempting to take care of their own whether you believe in the vaccine or not whether you are an anti-vaxxer or you were at you went and got the vaccine the first opportunity that it was presented to you the reality of it is because we did not have a national or federal standard and no biden hasn't done much better in being able to change that structure and give us a national or federal sta uh, standard, which whether we like the standard or not, we at least know and have a foundation to build off of. So I'm not just criticizing Trump, but I'm not going to overly criticize Biden either, because, again, where the continuity lacked, it led to an increase in messiness. And because there are so many different mandates in so many different American cities and so many different American counties, it was a lot harder for Biden to be able to come in and be able able to clean up the mess that Trump created because he did not set a national standard. The NBA is not necessarily able to set a national standards. The reasons may be different as to why they're not set, setting a national standard in the same way that Trump didn't set a national standard. But the reality is there has been no national standard set. And I do believe that if the if the government, the federal government would have set a standard a long time ago, it would have been an easy model for a national entity like the NBA to be able to take from. And you wouldn't have to deal with what some people are deeming to be hypocrisy because people and, and elected officials in particular cities have figured out, hey, I got to do everything that I got to do to take care of my own. And I can't worry about everybody else because you know what? Their mandates are different from mine. So, hey, Andrew Wiggins. Hey, Kyrie Irving. You're a resident here. You have to be taken care of in order for you to be able to play and participate in certain things that you want to participate in, in in this city. So that way, when we give these other teams an exemption or we know people are traveling New York and San Francisco for all different types of reasons. When you decide you just want to go out to the restaurant for whatever reason and there's probably tourists coming from all over the world to this city because that's what people do here is tour these cities because they're huge popular cities in this world the heck with just America, we are going to make sure that we protect our own. And quite frankly, I can't call that hypocritical. So now I want to talk a little bit about Manny Pacquiao. We brought him up a little bit last week, and he retired from boxing. And Spencer, who we had on last week, posed the question that, hey, Manny Pacquiao just had a fight not too long ago. And now he's running for presidency just just months after 
what does this mean if he's going to continue boxing but also run to be an elected official, an elected official at the same time? Do you think that that's feasible? Do you think that's possible? Do you think that can be done? And for certain reasons, I thought it could be done, even though I didn't think that even if he didn't announce retiring, that he was retiring, which obviously he just did this past week, he wasn't going to be looking to schedule no fight while he's running to be the president anyway. He might continue to train, and who knows what happens if he doesn't win the election. He might as well continue to train and be able to still box and fight in the case that he doesn't win the election and he can't commit his time to be the president of the Philippines because there's no guarantee that he's going to become the president anyway. So why not keep your options open and more available rather than to do what he did and retire so you can go all in to becoming the president of the Philippines. Now, what's commendable about that is we know Manny Pacquiao loves boxing. We know how lucrative boxing is for Manny Pacquiao. We know, especially here in America, that we wouldn't know Manny Pacquiao if it wasn't for boxing. Obviously can't say the same for the Philippines because that's his community. That's where he's from. They know him for far more than just boxing. And since he's gained his celebrity as a boxer, they know him as a huge philanthropist, somebody who gives back and who's been heavily entrenched and involved in what's going on in the in the community, especially the impoverished and the uh, and the unhoused community out there in the Philippines. So we can't say we can't speak to him the same way that folks in the Philippines can speak to him. But I do think that this was a chess move in terms of him attempting to be elected because there are going to be people that do question how truly committed he actually is to being the president of the Philippines if he didn't all the way decommit from being a boxer, which we know takes up a lot of time, takes up a lot of energy, and quite frankly, you just probably can't do both. Now, like I said, I don't think he would have scheduled a fight while he was in the middle of running for an election. I don't think that. But I do think that there is a newer and a better sense of comfortability for people to want to support Manny Pacquiao now that they know that he is retired and he's announced his retirement and he can literally throw all his chips, all his time, all of his just resources into that of trying to become the president of the Philippines. So I don't want to talk about this too much longer. We we obviously dug deep into it last week, but it is obviously important that Manny Pacquiao has officially announced his retirement from that of boxing. He is one of the most prolific punchers, punchers that we've ever seen in the sport. And I do think that it can give a new level of comfort for those who may have been on the fence about Manny Pacquiao in terms of does he have the time? Does he have the ability to be able to do both at the same time? Because now we know he is no longer going to be boxing. He may come back. That doesn't mean he's going to train and he's not going to come out of retirement. We've seen that happen far too often. But I do think that this gives a new sense of commitment for those of those that see, okay, we got Manny Pacquiao running for presidency here on top of all the other reasons of why you think he would already be committed because he's already a Senator in the Philippines anyway. So the commitment has been there, but now this is a new level of commitment as he's running for presidency in the Philippines. So congratulations to Manny Pacquiao for being able to retire. And uh, I'm very, very interested and intrigued by how he's going to pivot out of retirement and fully full-fledged into that 
of politics because obviously it's a big deal out there. Um, let's transition from that. And I want to talk about this clip of Mario Cristobal chewing out the player, his, his wide receiver that got the unsportsmanlike conduct for spinning the ball after getting like a first down. It wasn't even a touchdown. Like he spun the ball and posed and stared at the defender for like a first down catch. And Mario Cristobal, the head coach of the University of Oregon, lit his ass up. I mean, you could see it. I mean, he took his headphones off of his head, threw him on the ground as hard as he possibly did, as hard as he possibly could, excuse me, got all in this receiver's face. And while many people understand where the passion came from in terms of why Cristobal was mad and in terms of him yelling in this kid's face and trying to teach this kid a lesson ultimately in terms of what he did was absolutely unacceptable and don't do it again. The kid went back into the game. Nothing physical happened. He didn't like grab on him and tug him and pull on him or hit him upside his helmet. He didn't do any of those things, but you could really tell that that cussing out that that kid got was absolutely intense. And all the kid could say back to Mario Cristobal was, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Like you could read his lips through his face mask. And he's like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. He was shook at how Mario Cristobal reacted because I don't think he ever seen Mario Cristobal go off like that. And it's a nationally televised game. They're playing on ESPN. But where the controversy came into play was you had a analyst, an announcer, who was calling the game from ESPN. And initially, he understood why Mario Cristobal was angry at the player. Like, you're costing us points out here. You're getting us a penalty because you want to spin the ball after, like, a 10-yard catch. At least get in the end zone and just make us have to kick it off from far away. But don't do that before we even score. Like, at least score before you're going to do that. So I understand where Crystal Ball was mad. But ultimately, this moment went viral because as it was happening and as you could kind of see that Mario Crystal Ball wasn't really letting up too easy as he continued to curse this player out um rod gilmore who is an espn commentator who was calling that game during the broadcast basically said that the image and i'm basically just tell you what he said quote moreover the image of a 51 year old white man berating a young black man so publicly rubs a lot of us the, a lot of us the wrong way especially with all the racial injustice, bad optics, you can deliver the lesson without flexing your power and control. It did not make black parents that I know happy. Uh. I usually don't do this because I am somebody who does a whole lot of work when it comes to the fight for racial justice. I really, really do. But again, earlier when y'all heard me talking about the difference between like me when I'm in my play-by-play journalist, you know, broadcasting bag, broadcast journalist bag, I should say, 
And I'm still obviously being a broadcast journalist when I'm being an analyst, but it's in a much different form because you get to kind of see and feel and hear the former player coming out of me as I'm giving my opinions and I'm giving my takes on what it is that I'm seeing on the floor rather than just kind of straight up and down calling what is actually happening on the floor, which is more so of what you get from a play-by-play announcer. I get to kind of see... I get to kind of tell my opinion on things and what I think should change or what I think should be adjusted or why X, Y, and Z happened or at least why I think X, Y, and Z happened. This is the same reason why, unfortunately, I can't support Rod Gilmore as a black man being mad at Mario Cristobal for cursing a player out, especially being that we don't know what Mario Cristobal said. Now, again... That cursing out was passionate. It went viral. It went all over the place. If we could actually read Mario Cristobal's lips and hear what he was saying, and he really said something that was racially insensitive, or he said something that showed that he just had absolutely too much power or too much authority, and he was literally communicating something that abused that, then I could kind of agree with Gilmore in those terms. But, hey, man, just a passionate cursing out. And, heck, we don't even know if he cussed. And all we seen was the player just say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. We don't necessarily know what Mario Cristobal said. He might not have said a cuss word at all. Do I think he didn't say a curse word? No, but I don't know. And because I don't know that he said anything that was racially insensitive is why I can't necessarily support Gilmore in saying that that was a bad look or that those were bad optics because essentially Cristobal was overly passionate about what was a pretty bad mistake made on the on the football field it was a pretty bad mistake and I'll be honest with you just to tell y'all a little bit more about me and who I was as a player and maybe there's some toxic masculinity that's involved in this and I try my best not to be that but sometimes it, it just happens it just happens sometimes not in a bad or in an offensive way but it's just ingrained in me just a little bit. And, and this is what I'm going to speak to. When I was in college playing at Pacific University, I was a team captain. It was my senior year. This is the year that I am. I ended up being an all-conference player. So obviously I had a pretty good year to be able to be an all-conference player in the league, right? And our team wasn't doing so hot. Like, we had a really good preseason. We were like 8-3 and three after our first 11 games, but we were fully healthy and, and we had our full roster. And then around the holiday time, one of our best shooters, if not our best shooter actually, he got hurt and he was out for like six weeks. Our second best shooter was a local kid. He ended up quitting the team. And just the dynamics of our team and how we operate and the, and the rhythm and the flow that we were in just shifted drastically. So going into conference play, we're not playing good. Like, we are not having a good season going into conference play. And I'm going to be honest with you, and my coach will tell you this story. I wish D-Boy was here to talk about it because D-Boy and my coach actually have a really close relationship now. Um, and my coach is no longer a coach, but shout out to Tim Cleary, who was my basketball coach at Pacific University. But I know D-Boy can attest to this because in their own time that they've spent together, Cleary has told D-Boy this story where – Essentially, coach called me and our other co-captain, Stretch and JT. We were all co-captains together, and he calls us all in the office. And he's trying to figure out, like, what he should do, what his approach should be 
Like, what, what's the problem? Obviously, you know, we're trying to talk through this and try to figure this thing out so we can try to turn things around, get into the postseason, so on and so forth. And I'll be honest with y'all, man. I thought my coach was being kind of soft on particular players on the team when we started not playing so good. And instead of getting after it, or getting after them, excuse me, excuse me, or holding them accountable, he was kind of like, I don't want to use the word babying or coddling, but they wasn't playing good enough to not be held accountable for their performance out on the floor. Let's just put it that way. I may or may not have fell under that realm. I don't think so because, again, I was an all-conference player that year, but I I wouldn't have cared about being an all-conference player at all if we would have went out there and won all of them damn basketball games. So that just lets you know I wanted to win before being an all-conference player, and I would have did everything, and I did do everything that I could to try to go out there and win, and that's how I became an all-conference player because I wanted to win basketball games. We were not winning basketball games. So I tell Coach, I'm like, hey, man, you got to light us up. You got to cuss us out. You have to hold us account- accountable. Right now, you have players on our team that are not being held accountable. And if they're not being held accountable by you as the coach, it's tough for us as just your captains to hold these guys accountable as well. And so coach is like, well, I never took it there with these players. And, you know, I, I got to figure out their personalities a little bit. Some of them were transfers. It just came in that year. Coach is just trying to figure things out, right? I said, man, coach, listen. Our next team meeting, when we in the team room, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bitch me out. Curse me all the way out. Because I'm at least playing good at the time, right? And like I said, I need coach to hold all of us accountable. And again, I want to win. So if that means I got to be the first one to walk through the door and just take a straight up vulgar profane, nasty-ass cursing out from you, I'm willing to sacrifice and be the first player that you curse out so that way all the other players on the team that actually need to be cursed out can understand that you ain't playing favoritism or you're not setting no standards and I'm not the one that's exempt from the cuss out because guess what? I play on the team too. And again, I want the team to win. So you can make up a lie and curse me out for all I care, but if you're not going to be willing to curse some of our guys out because guys aren't holding themselves accountable on the floor and they need to be let known about it but you just don't know how to deliver it hell start with me because I want to win games and that's how passionate I am about winning games that I'm willing to take a cursing out for you from you to be able to go out there and do so so again that might tell you a little bit about me and who I was as a player and why it's a little bit tough for me to operate with Gilmore and agree with Gilmore in terms of the bad optics and and you know Mario Cristobal might have went a little bit too far because Mario Cristobal just wants to win, and clearly they've been winning. And based on the response of that young wide receiver, when Cristobal chewed him out, he didn't respond in a negative way. So we can't dial down the passion or we can't allow character to be, or we can't not allow for character to no longer be built within the sport again. If we knew what Cristobal was saying and we know that he was saying some some offensive things and some racially insensitive things and so on and so forth, forget the optics. If we knew what he was saying and what he said was wrong, I'd be able to jump off the ledge with you and maybe say this is a black-white thing. 
But just because a man look overpassionate or just because a man look like he taking it too far and he ain't even did nothing physical to the player, he ain't even touched the player, I just can't jump off that ledge with you and call this a race incident. Feels kind of soft to me. It feels kind of soft to me. I had a whole lot more to talk about on the docket today, and and maybe next week we'll get into it. I'll have more people in here. I won't just be talking by myself. And I'll be honest with y'all. I'm a little tired. I'm a little tired. Again, I had a huge broadcast this morning. It was like a two-hour broadcast. Like, that's that's not light. Like, you don't just see people doing two- and three-hour broadcasts like that. Like, it was, it was work. Like, it was legitimate work. But, again, we had huge success at the Street Roots Family Breakfast, and I'm super grateful for all the support that we got at the breakfast. And I'm giving it taking L's this week, and I'm giving this taking L's rather quick because I'm ready to get out of here first and foremost. And second of all, it's probably going to be more than just an L that I give you on this podcast. And I tell y'all all the time, an L can mean a loss or a less. And it's all dependent upon how you how you perceive it when you're listening to whatever takes that we're giving on the Taking L segment here. Obviously, the loss aspect plays off the fact that this podcast is called Wake Up and Win. So we got to do a segment that's called Taking L's of people that probably didn't make the brightest decision or just didn't do something so good or whatever the case may be. But my taking L, pretty easy, pretty simple. Got to give it to R. Kelly. Um, He's been found guilty finally on a whole bunch of accounts of child sex trafficking and just I'm not even going to sit here and rattle off everything that he was found guilty of. But many of us know the story. We've been following the story. We've seen the documentaries. We've seen the tweets. We've seen everything. And R. Kelly is no longer, or he's probably going to take an L like life. He's probably going to get a life sentence in in prison. That's the L that he'll probably end up taking. We won't know what the actual sentence is going to be, I think, until sometime early 2022. But we do know that he's guilty on a whole bunch of accounts that probably add up to that L being life rather than a loss on the Wake Up and Win podcast or even a lesson on the Wake Up and Win podcast. But R. Kelly's out of here, essentially, is what I'm getting at. And... I'm seeing the conversation spark back up again on how do we separate R. Kelly the singer from R. Kelly the rapist, the R. Kelly the the the, the child sex trafficker, because R. Kelly made such genius music, such genius music, and he was just so good at what he did, and we all know that. That's part of the reason this is such a big story. We know how good of a musician R. Kelly was. We know that R. Kelly was an absolute genius. But hey, I've been DJing for five years now. Ever since that documentary came out, I ain't played an R. Kelly record since. It's not that hard. And I feel like many people are trying to make this a conversation about whether they should support his music or not, even though they know he's a terrible man and he did all these terrible things to all of these kids just for the sake of a conversation. Even if you do decide to listen to R. Kelly, listen to it on your own time or don't go on social media or on your podcast having a conversation about, and one of my favorite podcasts has had this conversation, the Joe Budden podcast, about whether we should change the narrative, or not even just change the narrative, but about whether we should listen to the guy's music or not. It's just not worth it. 
it's just not worth it. And I feel hypocritical myself and I'm my skin is crawling right now myself because I'm having to instruct people not to do this shit. But there's no reason that we should be talking about whether we're still going to listen to R. Kelly's music or not a couple days after he was just found guilty on a bunch of child sex criminal charges. His music is not relevant right now. I don't care how good or genius it is. Again, I'm a DJ. I know what his music could do on a dance floor. I know what his music can do in the club. I know what his music could do in a lounge. I know what a music can do anywhere. We know who he is and who he was musically. That can never be taken away from him, nor should we try to take it away from him. And again, if you want to listen to him on your own time, that's totally up to you. But why does the conversation have to be whether whether we should still be listening to R. Kelly's music or not right now. I'm not here to tell you what to listen to, but I also don't care that you don't know if you're going to stop listening to R. Kelly's music or not after he just got charged for a shit ton of child sex charges. It just doesn't make sense to me. So not only is he taking an L, his L is probably going to be far more severe than the L that I'm giving to everybody right here that want to sit here and make whether his music should still be played or not a debate topic on social media or a debate topic on your podcast after the man just got charged for all of these criminal charges for the nasty, foul shit that he's done to all of these kids. On that note, I'm leaving y'all the only way that I know how, and that is to stay woke and go woke.